Cinema Journal presents Acta Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we have a chock-full episode for you. Uh, one of our most loaded episodes ever. This is some seriously good content. Yeah, very excited. So we're actually going to cut right to the chase. No, no, you know, no banter, which uh, some of you, based on the survey, which we'll talk about at the end of this episode, some of I you... I think people really like the banter. <laughs> I think so. We only got one even semi-negative comment about it, so... Uh, but but we will banter at the end about the yeah, survey, so you've got that to look forward to. Before that, though, we've got a Cinema Journal Classics for you, we've got a report on net neutrality, and we have an SCMS preview of Montreal. Some very good stuff. So let's jump right in. We've got Bill, uh, so he's conducted a Cinema Journal Classics interview for us, and he's talking to John Lewis, author of a 2000 article on how the blacklist saved Hollywood. Hi, I'm here with Professor John Lewis. John is in the School of Writing, Literature, and Film at Oregon State University. He's the author of many books, including The Road to Romance and Ruin, Teen Films and Youth Culture, and Hollywood v. Hardcore, How the Struggle Over Censorship Saved the Modern Film Industry. You may also recognize him from his appearance in the documentaries This Film is Not Yet Rated and Inside Deep Throat. John, welcome to Acamedia. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. We're here today to talk to you about your article from 2000, Cinema Journal 39, number two. We do not ask you to condone this, How the Blacklist Saved Hollywood, which several people mentioned as a great article that we should feature in our CJ Classics segment. And I confess, I, I love this essay. It's one of this, those articles that gets you to think very differently about something that you thought you knew. And for all your expertise in censorship, what I think is really interesting about this essay is that we understand the blacklist as an issue of censorship, as a political story, but you're also adding to that this dimension of the blacklist as an economic story. So can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of the essay and that, that distinction? I, I actually didn't expect to be writing about the blacklist. I actually wrote this essay while I was researching Hollywood v. Hardcore. And I had as my mantras in in talking about the history of content censorship, uh, this notion of in Hollywood when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. So I had the sense that, well, the story of content censorship had less to do or maybe nothing to do with morality, really, and had a lot to do with industry PR. And I was I was interested in, in how this related to the MPAA. You know, that how did the MPAA get so powerful that it could really put all the sort of pieces together in 1968 for the um, voluntary movie rating system, which was really the focus of the book. And I was just sort of wondering how the MPA got in that position and found that the MPA really, its power base is rooted in the blacklist. And then I became interested in the blacklist, not as so many people had written about it as sort of part of the history of the Cold War, part of the history of the evolution of the American left or the, even the American Communist Party, and more how it, how it related to economic issues in Hollywood at the time and industry PR. So I, I, I ended up writing about the blacklist really as in terms of content censorship because I discovered that there, 
it actually had the same through line. You know, when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. So for those who haven't had a chance to read the essay yet, can you tell us a little bit, what is that through line? So how is this an economic story? Well, there are, there are, there are two big issues at stake besides left-wing politics that really come to the fore, even, even in the two questions that were asked uh, of the Hollywood 10 at the first House Committee on Un-American Activities uh, event in 1947, which was, you know, uh, are you now ever a member of the Communist Party? Are you now are you ever a member of the Screenwriters Guild? And of course, the suggestion that the two were somehow related, that if you're one, then you're probably the other. I, I was interested in how, how the the two questions related in in a kind of economic context. In other words, what's going on in Hollywood that the, that the second question, are you a member of the Screenwriters Guild, would matter to anybody? And the answer is the, the labor movement. You have the Warner Brothers strike in 41, uh, I mean 45, and you have the Disney strike in 41, uh, both to an extent victories for labor. And there's a real fear as the war ends that this is the future of Hollywood, that it's just going to be a kind of shift in power. Not only is the classical Hollywood studio system falling apart, but now you have the emergence of these powerful unions. And I was wondering, you know, how 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 can we look at the blacklist as as a way of the studios sort of reasserting their power in terms of, in this case, making belonging to a union or certainly activism in a union tantamount to membership in the Communist Party, um, or at least putting you in a situation where you're going to have to answer questions that are very difficult to answer. And whether or not they're actually afraid of the unions or not, I mean, I think they are afraid of, of a kind of destabilized labor situation. And the blacklist becomes this kind of lucky moment where they reassert their power over this over this potentially problematic labor force. I should add the other part of this that interested me what were the, I think it's 11 days, it's either 11 or 12 days, I'm forgetting for the second here. Um, but right when the um, the committee, after they talked to the Hollywood 10, they actually figure they've gotten nowhere. And um, they've got nine people left to talk to and they don't even bother. It's, it's, it's maybe not a national disgrace or anything, um, though it is, but it's not perceived that way. But it's a sense that they didn't get what they wanted. And the MPAA, Eric Johnston, uh, who's the head of the MPAA, comes out and says, you know, we're not going to blacklist anybody. And um, then 11 days later, they completely change their minds and they say, we will not employ anybody who's had any, any potential affiliation. So I became curious, sort of like what happened in those 11 days, you know, uh, did they have a complete ideological turnaround? And I guess I'm too cynical to believe that happened. So I'm saying, well, what happened in those 11 days? And I think what they what they did is a kind of cost-benefit analysis and said, well, you know, this is kind of embarrassing, but uh, we've got two big problems. We've got the unions and we've got this whole Jewish, this perception of Jewish Hollywood. And how can we use the blacklist to get rid of both of uh, our PR problems? And they did. So my cynical title, How, how the Blacklist Saved Hollywood, is because I actually believe the blacklist saved Hollywood. It's ironic, tragic, whatever, but I do believe that. And here you're talking about the shift from the studio system, the entrepreneurial model of Hollywood, to the corporate conglomerate model that we know today. Yeah, I think this is the first step. Again, you have this sort of crisis point. I'm really fascinated in this sort of moment in the late 40s when clearly, you know, with the Paramount decision coming in 48, even as early as 47, the studios know that 
the end of one era is, is, is here and what's coming next is God knows. And it really takes them from 47 to at least 66, 68 to make that transition. And I think here we are early in this sort of really troubling moment and the blacklist comes at a kind of, it's either a perfect storm with the Paramount decision and other signs of the end of the studio system and, you know, at hand, or it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the first step towards a strategy towards a new conglomerate, Hollywood. A crisitunity, as they say. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what can you tell us about the writing of this article, about researching it, about getting it published? Right when I decided that I had to find the sort of roots of the MPAA, um, or at least the roots of their sort of power base. Um, you know, how did they become powerful enough to get the studios to all, well, in a way, to all sign on to a new regime of censorship in 68? And I ended up back at the blacklist and I saw, well, you know, they were part of this complex negotiation with regard to labor and with regard to public relations, to diminishing the notion of, uh, or countering the notion of uh, Jewish Hollywood. And uh, when I was really early in this, in this, um, I got invited to give a talk at USC on this topic. And, uh, cause I had done a couple of, I think, SEMS presentations sort of setting the stage for this. And I wasn't exactly sure where it was going. And then I remember flying to LA and I live in Oregon. So it's a pretty quick flight and I'm sitting next to somebody and it was one of these conversations, you know, what do you do? And, you know, when you tell them you're a film historian, it's like you get this look, right? And then it's um, you know, like, is that really a job look? And then um, said, so, well, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, I was going to give a talk at USC. And then he said, on the blacklist. And, and he said, well, what are you going to say? You know, it's, oh, the blacklist. And I felt like saying, well, I'm against it. You know, I felt like just getting rid of the conversation and go, well, the blacklist, I'm against it. And then I realized for the first moment that Eddie Dimitrik still taught at USC. And Dimitrik was one of the Hollywood 10 who recanted, ratted out his former friends or colleagues and got his career back. And I'm thinking, well, what if he, I mean, I had this terrible feeling. What if he shows up to my talk? You know, even though I'm talking about the economics of it, I'm, I'm pretty rigid about the division in the blacklist between martyrs and rats, that there's just heroes and villains. And he's a rat and, and a villain. And, you know, he was probably in his 90s at that point. So I guess I was safe that he didn't show up. But but what was interesting was it was it was a talk not to students. It was a sort of this faculty seminar set up so that everyone in the room was a pretty high-powered cat. And um, I remember um, Chris Horak was, who I didn't know at the time, we're, we're good friends now, um, and he absolutely grilled me. And uh, Dana Poland, who was chair of the department at the time as well. I had the good fortune of giving a very speculative paper, speculative version of the essay that appeared in Cinema Journal, and having you know two really smart guys take me to task on a whole bunch of stuff. One I knew very well, Dana, and one I didn't know at the time at all. And I don't know, Chris is this really big guy and he's a big personality. He's a really smart guy. And he was, I, I just felt like, who is this guy? And what does he want from me? But the paper became a lot better at that point. And then I had one, one other interesting event is that it became the first chapter eventually of Hollywood v. Hardcore, the same essay, uh, but a much longer version is the ch first chapter of the book. And the editor at NYU didn't didn't think it belonged in the book. And I, at that point, was so convinced that it was absolutely crucial to my argument, my larger argument about content censorship, really policy and procedure in the industry, that it was an, it was an argument that I'm glad I won because I think it really did belong there. So, you know, I think a lot of people go to these, these talks and you're, you know, part of you just wants to sort of 
stick to a kind of script where where people are going to say, oh, what a great paper. And I've kind of never been like that. I mean, I was throwing stuff out that I'm glad's not in it anymore because you know it's wrong or it's 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 really difficult to defend. And um, so I was sort of lucky on that. Would you be willing to tell us some of those missteps? Well, I really wanted to link it to a kind of larger history of anti-Semitism, and I, and I, and I think that was a little bit simplistic. I mean, this sounds more like a nuance now, but it really I don't think is. You know, ob- obviously, America First, for example, the whole isolationist movement, which predates. I mean, it's the same players. The players in the isolationist movement become the players in the Red Scare. And I was, I wanted to show a, co- a continuity from the propaganda hearings, which I talk about in the essay, to HUAC. I mean, both are sort of clearly anti-Semitic. But then to make the leap and to say, well, the moguls themselves were self-hating Jews or whatever, I think it's too simple. And I think uh, I have a more, I got a more nuanced view of of that. And I do think that's important because if you're just simply saying, well, you know, the the moguls were self-hating Jews and they were hiding their Jewishness out of something they actually believed rather than they were hiding their Jewishness because it was, they realized it was bad for business. And these guys were businessmen. I mean, they did business. I mean, this came up recently in debates over Tom Doherty's book. Um, and then there was this other book, and I forget the author's name, who was sort of saying that the the studio heads were colluding with Hitler before the war, which is a totally idiotic argument. They weren't colluding with anybody. They were selling the, They were marketing their films until they couldn't market their films. And I think once that piece fell into place, it actually made my argument stronger. And I had, uh, just quickly, I had this really interesting experience. After I published the essay, I got a handwritten note from Maurice Raff, who was blacklisted. So he was, you know, the, the article was published in 2000, so that's 53 years after the blacklist. There's just not that many people alive still who were blacklisted. And um, I knew exactly who he was, and when I saw this, it, was, it, was, it wasn't even in a business envelope. It was a little look like a Christmas card. And I'm thinking, oh God, you know, what is this going to be? Because it's, it's that moment where he lived through it. So I, whatever I've written, I can't possibly have experienced the way he had. And he wrote and it was handwritten, was really sort of terse. And it said, you know, loved your article, hated the title. <laughs> he appreciated that somebody had finally said it's not just ideology, uh, but he hated the title. And then I, I, I then met Joanna Rath, his daughter who teaches at Oklahoma, who's a film scholar. And I said, you know, your father wrote me this note. And she said, oh, did he hate your article? And I said, no, no, he didn't hate it. And he said, oh, well, then that's good. Because <laughs> apparently he had hated everything that was written on the blacklist. So I felt vindicated in a way that he hated it. But he had no sense of humor because the title's cynical and ironic. And I don't think old lefties have much <laughs> of a taste for irony, I guess. Yeah, well, the, so. the title is ironic. And then the tone is really interesting in this article. That's one of the things that I also appreciate about it is that it's not written like your standard academic cinema journal sort of article. It's a little bit, um, I don't know if combative is the right term. That that sounds that sounds too negative. It's it's forceful in a way that makes it really really energizing to read. Oh well, thanks. You know, it's um in those days, it's still true. You know, it was sent to two readers, and then if they don't agree, it's sent to a third reader. And one reader loved it. One reader hated it. Uh, and it was the tone that they hated, or it was the writing you know, that it didn't read like an academic article. I take that as a compliment, frankly. It meant that you could understand what I was writing about. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I have a kind of, in everything I write, I mean, I actually, I have an MFA in creative writing, so maybe that's one of the reasons why, is that my previous degree to my my film degree is in writing. 
and um, and I talk about literature. I talk about a lot of things that you don't see much in. Certainly in 2000, you didn't see much in um, film articles. So first, thanks for saying that. But yeah, I did. And then the third reader loved it, so it ended up being published. And the the editor at the time, Frank Tomasulo, also championed the essay. He thought it was great. So I didn't have, you know, eventually, obviously, got published, et cetera. But um, I, I'm guessing that I appreciate what you're saying, but there were people on the other side who were saying that this isn't really, you know, and especially, yeah, I think Cinema Journal had a reputation in those days as something with, you know, 150 footnotes and really kind of straightforward and sober. And my article, I don't think any of my writing is particularly sober. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, the irony of the title, of course, comes from what we sort of referred to earlier, the the shift toward conglomerate Hollywood and the weakening of union power. And that seems, even since your article came out, that seems to have continued to accelerate. And uh, a couple of high-profile strikes that did not do much to strengthen union power in Hollywood. So is the new Hollywood that was ushered in by the sort of blacklist economics, is that still recognizable today? Is it, is it continuing down the same path? Or are you seeing any shifts given some of the, the technological and economic changes that are happening within the industry otherwise? I, I predicted something that happened. You know, I said, well, we can, we can look at the 1980 actor strike. That's the one I talk about, which was a, a colossal failure um, as, as an example of how the studios actually used the blacklist to, to take away the power of the of the Hollywood Guild movement. So the guilds still exist and they do things like, you know, give health insurance to their membership and, you know, sort things out in terms of final credits running at the end of the movie. But there hasn't been a job action that's gotten anywhere in Hollywood since 1945 or so. I mean, really. And, and, and I think we have the blacklist to thank for that, that really the unions exist for something besides besides collective action in terms of strikes. I mean, no strike's ever going to work in Hollywood. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had the, I don't know. I'm not happy that I was right, but I, I was definitely right about that. And the blacklist itself seems you know, to be receding, but it's really not. And in fact, there was a flare-up uh, just last month where Kevin Spacey was paying tribute to uh, Stanley Kramer and revived some of these questions over you know, what you said were martyrs versus rats, you know, these sort of clear-cut distinctions between who was the good guy and who was the bad guy, including um, Kramer's widow writing in to defend him and that sort of thing. So what do you see is the, the ongoing lesson that we can draw politically and in terms of censorship about the, the blacklist era? I mean, people are still trying to clear their names. I mean, this is the amazing thing. I, I don't know how... how um old Stanley Kramer's widow is, um, whether she was speaking to something that she really did have firsthand information on or just stuff that, that Kramer had told her after the fact. Um, and they're talking about a movie that's actually uh, a short that's on one of the editions of High Noon. And it makes pretty clear that Kramer screwed Foreman out of their partnership and further, you know, basically screwed him over and, and he ended up in exile in England for much of his later career. Uh, and Jonathan Foreman, who's a journalist, I want to say he writes for the New York Post, or did, has a really interesting essay about um, that was published in a British journal about his life growing up in England and how his father would, would be sitting at the typewriter completely incapable of writing another film script, uh, but wholly capable of writing um, angry letters to the New York Times that he would then tear up. So, I mean... 
I don't think anybody – I think the legacy is nobody who was there forgot about it, and they're still taking sides. So that his widow in 2015 is still trying to say that Kramer wasn't a bad guy, and maybe he wasn't in some ways, but I think the argument about, about Foreman is a little difficult. I find it difficult to swallow because of what happened to Foreman and the fact that he did lose half the company. And um, certainly Foreman thought that Kramer betrayed him. So looking back at the essay now, how would you like it to be read today? Well, you know, I don't – I'm just – maybe it's just a philosophy thing. I tend to – I mean it's already published. I can't do anything about it it's, except feel good or bad. Both seem weird to me. You know, <laughs> feeling good about something you've done seems seems a little conceited, and and feeling bad, well, uh, there are few enough few enough rewards in this particular line of work that you're allowed to feel good when you've written a brilliant article. I think. Oh uh, well, that's sweet of you to say. Um, but, I, I, and again, you know, in a, I'm a practical person, so I can't change it. So why read it and find problems <laughs> with it and just pull out my hair? I can't do anything about it. Um, I, 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 I am proud of the essay, to be honest. I do think it's I, – I stumbled upon an aspect of this, um, aspect of a story that had been told – I mean, the reason why the – the editor at NYU, uh, Eric Zinner, is a great guy and I thought did a great job on the book. The reason why he didn't want me to start the book with The Blacklist is he felt, well, The Blacklist has been written to death. And this was even even you know, over a decade ago. He just felt it's been written to death. And I can see what he's saying. That you know, And there were a lot of people who had sort of ownership of talking about The Blacklist. And I didn't dispute that, but I really felt like I had a completely different way of looking at it that didn't diminish that other argument, because I absolutely believe there was an ideological argument in play, and there were Cold War players who really were true believers in what they were saying. I mean, Nixon was a, an awful human being, but he really did believe what he was, what he was doing at the time. Um, so I, 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 I absolutely get that that ideological argument is is valid in there. But for me, I just don't believe that that's why or how Hollywood does business. I was just talking in, in, in a class about 12 years a slave, and this was yesterday. And what was interesting is, you know, I said, well, we can track, you know, well, how does the film get made? And of course, there's Brad Pitt's role. So how does that change how we look at the film when it's a, you know, a white millionaire Hollywood movie star that is the only way this movie becomes the kind of movie that could even win an Oscar, you know, a major studio release. And I said, add to that, that it's a Fox Searchlight film. So it's Rupert Murdoch's 12 Years a Slave. And what do we do with that? Well, knowing what little I know about Rupert Murdoch, I don't think a progressive movie about race relations is exactly in his wheelhouse, but I don't see him disowning the movie either. Because I don't think Hollywood is ideological in, in that simple way. Um, in the simple way that he has a news channel that rather clearly adheres to his political argument. This film doesn't, but it doesn't matter because it's Hollywood. So I, I really do think that everything in Hollywood is motivated by money. So Fox Searchlight's very happy with 12 Years a Slave because it won an Oscar and won, made a bunch of money that they probably weren't all that sure they'd make with a movie about slaves. So there you are. So connecting that back to your essay, there's you know there are several films that you talk about. One in particular, Crossfire from 1947. If those films had been making more money, would that have possibly changed the equation? I think it's small 
it, it's it's whether you take the big picture or a small picture. I mean, I think um, Gentleman's Agreement probably did make money and won the Oscar, right? And so best years of our lives as well. Yeah, another, that, that's that troika of films that they talk about. Crossfire. Yeah, yeah, and and the first one is just because it's a downer, and I think you can see why the MPAA was worried. Would Hollywood become ideological and and in a progressive way, but still just ideological? And it was a fear that they had become so dependent on a kind of global marketplace and this fear of two things. One is these films wouldn't play well overseas or worse, they would play and give people a misapprehension about American life, that it's anti-Semitic, that it's racist, that it's um, Americans have come back from the war and rather rather than being energized by saving the planet, so to speak, they've come back and they're broken. Uh, So there, there is a kind of you can see why those fe- why why those films were problematic. So even if they were successful, Gentleman's Agreement in '47 wins the Oscar, Best Years of Our Lives the previous year. Even so, even though those films were successful, that that would become a kind of steady diet for the American film going and global film going community was was clearly not part of the MPA agenda. Is there a smoking gun for that argument? I wish there were. I mean, I have. It's a sort of like you you can identify the moment, but you can't identify exactly what happened in that moment. So something happened, but I can't find anything. I've never read anything that really outlines what was said at the meeting between um, the owners of the studios and and, um, Eric Johnston that led him to go from, we're not going to go totalitarian is what he says after the committee shuts down after basically failing to getting anything failing to get anything out of the Hollywood 10 to then suddenly saying basically issuing the Waldorf statement which is a proclamation that they're going to inf- themselves enforce the blacklist i mean one of the if there's a smoking gun it's that huac doesn't have to do anything after 1947 the mpa is perfectly willing to do all the dirty work for them I don't think 11 days means that you've been forced into anything. You're not even holding out. You're just saying, yeah, this is a good idea. And again, I don't believe from 30 years of experience as a a Hollywood historian, I just simply don't see the studios as ever being particularly ideological, but they are very concerned about the bottom line. So I think in those 11 days, a convincing argument was made that for the bottom line of Hollywood, the blacklist is a good thing. Hence the title, uh, The Blacklist Saves Hollywood, because it does. As a long-term strategy, the blacklist establishes the power of the MPAA, and the MPAA in 1968 adopts the rating system, and the rating system for sure saves Hollywood. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. John Lewis, thank you again for joining us on Acamedia. Well, my pleasure. Like I said, I was flattered you wanted to talk to me, and I'm very happy uh, to have done this. I love these Cinema Journal classics. Yeah, I think it's a really great way to both go over this material again, dig deeper into it, and then especially the thinking about what's happened since. I really liked in that conversation their discussion of things now, and even both things now and then how things from the blacklist are still being circulated around and discussed and judged. Yes, absolutely. And if there are other classic Cinema Journal articles that you think we ought to profile and go back and revisit, please let us know because we're always up for suggestions. Yeah, and especially if you use something in your classes and you would love to then have your students listen to an interview with the author, that'd be a great uh, suggestion for us. Yeah. 
All right, now uh, are we going to get a chance to listen to your piece on net neutrality? Yes, we are. There's been a Excellent. lot of talk about net neutrality in recent weeks. Actually, one of the things that came up in the ACA Media survey was that you wanted more pieces on current events. And so nothing more current than net neutrality discussions. So um, I rang up Danny Kimball. He's currently working on a book on a uh, book project on net neutrality discourse and the regulation of internet infrastructures. So he seemed like a very good person to uh, to talk to about this. And just to preview what you're getting here, I first talked to him in mid-February. This was when word of the new net neutrality regulations was starting to leak. Then you'll hear a few sound bites from the FCC meeting where the new rules were passed. And then I returned to Danny again to learn afterwards what his reaction was to that FCC meeting and the new rule. So sort of a fun uh, little transportation and time piece here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is some on-the-spot reporting. Yeah. Christine Becker, annihilating space and time. Oh, my God. That's what's possible in this new net neutrality world. No one's going to throttle me. That's right. Let's give it a listen. I am joined today by Danny Kimball, who is a visiting assistant professor in communication and media studies at Goucher College. Thank you for joining us, Danny. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here because we want you to help us make some sense of net neutrality. It's something we hear so much about. It seems on the surface to be a relatively simple concept, but nothing is simple when it comes to regulation and the internet and politics. So what would these rules mean? Can you give an example of, with these rules enacted, what could or could not happen with the internet? Well, the the main set of rules basically say that internet service providers aren't allowed to interfere with traffic on the internet to favor certain traffic and, and disfavor other traffic. So you can't, as an internet service provider, uh, you, you couldn't block your users from getting access to certain websites or certain apps or certain online services. Uh, and at the same time, you couldn't speed up sites that are, for instance, paying more to have faster access to their users or throttle or slow down services that refuse to pay kind of a gatekeeper toll or, or something like that. So that sort of basic set of rules says that all traffic on the Internet, regardless of who it is that's sending it, regardless of who it is that's receiving it, should be treated equally. And, and that's a set of rules that the FCC had been working with for quite a while. Uh, but some of the biggest problems with those rules uh, were that they didn't apply to uh, mobile broadband services. So if you got uh, your internet through a cable company in your house, the rules would apply then. But the internet that you get on your smartphone from your phone company when you're out and about, uh, the rules wouldn't have applied there. Uh, and the other big issue is that uh, there was a, a complicated sort of set of ways that the FCC attempted to implement those rules that were based in one part uh, of their regulatory authority that really limited what they were allowed to do. And that really had to do with how they defined broadband services at all. That was the reason why the set of 2010 rules were struck down in 2014 by a federal appeals court that basically said these rules are, are a great idea, but the way that you're doing it is, is not going to work legally. So that kind of sent the FCC back to the drawing board, and that's why we have new rules being proposed now. This has become fodder for political debate now, and I'm especially struck by how it has become such a left-right issue, yeah. um, which seems a little different from where it was in the early 2000s. You can tell me if that's correct or not, but what role do you see politics playing in this? That, I think, is one of the more interesting developments that this used to be 
uh, not even a, a bipartisan issue, but a, a nonpartisan issue, that it, it was seen as a matter of maybe esoteric kind of wonky policy debate that didn't really enter into the larger partisan politics conversation that, that we think of. Uh, and that was when it, it was an issue that first started to come to some public attention around 2005 and 2006. The sort of initial push for net neutrality rules at the FCC was actually supported by a wide variety of interest groups and, and nonprofit organizations. And, and I think that as the issue became more prominent, it got tied to partisan politics in a way that I think it would be very easy to say, like, well, there's this was an, an objectively good set of policies that now are getting mired in the kind of dirty politics that, that we think of in Washington. And why can't it just sort of stay above the fray and we can agree this is the way the Internet should be and keep it out of partisan politics. But in a way, I think the move toward politicizing the issue actually helped move it forward in a certain way. Uh, because as much as that's meant that the issue has been defined on the right as within the kind of traditional battle of how much government intervention is appropriate, and on the right the answer, of course, is always never, uh, or or uh, in, in very limited fashion, that this is considered, well, this is government regulation, this is government intervention into the internet, so that it means it's a non-starter issue for Republicans. But at the same time, it has kind of galvanized folks on the left and really toward the middle as well to say this is a necessary set of policy proposals that should move forward if we want to have a kind of equality and fairness that we've come to associate with the Internet to kind of stick around. And that, I think, was a, a major part of organizing what has been really a, a legitimate grassroots social movement to push for this is, is having a set of you know, the, the cable companies as bad guys and having that as a right-left issue almost turned it into something that made it a political issue that kind of got people more excited about it in a certain way. All right, we're going to put you on the spot here because we're going to record you right now predicting what will happen in about two weeks. So the FCC is going to vote on these rules. So we're going to pin you down here okay. to give us a prediction. And then we're going to revisit with you in a couple of weeks after the vote to see how your prediction turned out. So so give yeah. us your prediction. Well, I'll, I'll say that I have long been kind of unnecessarily optimistic about this issue, even as, as I've sort of followed it for a long time. It didn't seem likely that things were going to go well. And yet I still sort of held out hope that net neutrality would win. And I feel like that hope has now turned into like a really pretty logical conclusion. I think that these strong rules are going to pass the FCC. I think that when the vote happens, that we're going to see the, the three Democratic commissioners voting for it and the two Republican commissioners sort of vehemently opposing it. And, and I think that that's going to happen, even though there is a major industry push from cable companies and phone companies to kind of muddy the waters about this and, and get folks in Congress uh, fired up about this to push back against it. The actual text of the rules themselves hasn't been released yet and won't be released until the vote. So of course, there's all sorts of devils laying in those details, I'm sure. But if, if the general gist of them remain the way that they look now, without too many glaring loopholes buried in there, I'm pretty confident that, that we should feel good about rules that are going to get passed in, in the coming weeks here. So we're going to take a two-week break and <laughs> revisit with you and see what little devils are in those details and uh, follow up with you on that then. 
to the February meeting of the Federal Communications Commission. Madam Secretary, good morning to you. Would you please? This is a big deal. What is also a big deal is four million voices. Four million Americans wrote this agency to make known their ideas, thoughts, and deeply held opinions about internet openness. They lit up our phone lines, clogged our email inboxes, and jammed our online comment system. That might be messy, but whatever our disagreements are on network neutrality, I hope we can agree that that's democracy in action and something we can all support. This is not only a radical departure from the bipartisan, market-oriented policies that have served us so well over the past two decades. It is also an about-face from the proposals the FCC itself made just last May. So why is the FCC turning its back on Internet freedom? Is it because we now have evidence that the Internet is broken? No. We are flip-flopping for one reason and one reason only. President Obama told us to do so. I tried to keep score on all the things I disagreed with that you said, but, but I, I've got you on my scorecard now as undecided but probably wavering against. <laughs> this is no more a plan to regulate the Internet than the First Amendment is a plan to regulate free speech. They both stand for the same concept openness, expression, and an absence of gatekeepers telling people what they can do, where they can go, and what they can think. Today, history is being made by a majority of this commission as we vote for a fast, fair, and open Internet. And with that, I will call for the yeas and nays. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? No. no. The ayes have it. The okay, we have jumped ahead two weeks. It is now a couple days after the FCC vote, and we have Danny Kimball back here, and uh, we get to hear his reaction now to what happened. And we last talked, you said the devil was going to be in the details of the plan. So what are the details? What are the devils? Part of the uh, the devilish part of this is a lot of the details haven't even been released to the public yet. It it passed and has to be sort of worked out before it's all released publicly in terms of the whole like 300 page report in order that it's all in. So I'll be eager to look through all of that when it does come out. But what has been released as far as the kind of uh, general outline of everything that's in there is what it was looking like in terms of the kind of leaks and rumors in the um, weeks leading up to it largely uh, panned out with that. And that's that basically there's a set of bright line rules, uh, which means that they clearly spell out what you can and can't do. Mostly no blocking of content, no throttling of content, and no what's called paid prioritization uh, the fast lanes that everybody was worried about are explicitly banned. And uh, that's that's very good as opposed to having kind of a, a vague set of things in the rules that then could be argued about on a case-by-case -case basis. These bright line rules are laid out really well 
upfront. The other thing that is, uh, I think, uh, the the biggest deal that this actually went through is the reclassification of broadband under Title II. So this is, I think, the most important part of actually having real net neutrality, because regardless of how good the rules are, if they're not backed by the regulatory standard that goes with Title II, which is the long-standing tradition of common carriage, that, that the rules aren't going to stand up in court, and that Title II classification went through. Uh, so, so now we officially have common carriage protections for uh, internet access, which is, I think, the biggest deal of, of all of this. The other big thing that is definitely happening now is that the rules are all going to be applied to mobile broadband as well. So it doesn't matter how you access the internet, whether it's over a hard wire on a desktop computer or your cell phone out walking around on 4G or something, it doesn't matter. The rules are going to apply equal to both. Some of the, the places where the details are still being kind of fought over are around the issue of what's uh, referred to as forbearance. Which is uh oh, we gotta learn a new word now. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is where a lot of fight will also be around the application of certain sets of rules that exist under Title II. Some of them can apply, some of them can be for forbeared or forborn, or I'm not sure what the exact conjugation of that one would be. But basically there's like hundreds of provisions of the Communications Act that the FCC can choose to apply once they have classified it Title II. And basically, part of the argument against Title II has been, oh my God, you're just going to inundate these broadband providers with all of these new rules. It's going to crush investment and, and you know everybody is going to be running for the hills. When in fact, what the FCC has said all along is there's going to be about five or six of these provisions that are going to apply uh, and it's actually going to be pretty light touch regulation. But also there's a debate around other rules applied to more kind of utility style regulation, which largely the FCC is going to forbear from. And so a lot of the uh, explanation of this as, well, Internet access is now going to be regulated as a utility makes for kind of easy shorthand in in headlines and, and sound bites. But it's not entirely true because a lot of the utility style regulation of like regulating rates and uh, unbundling wholesale access from retail access and, and all of these sort of things that, that come with utility regulation are actually not going to happen. So you could argue about whether that, I think that actually could be uh, a really good thing, but I understand why it's, you know, we've, we've gotten almost everything that we've asked for. So asking for... Uh, you know, kind of really extra radical sort of re-regulation here, I think is maybe like getting a, a little getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But uh, I, I do think there's kind of really good stuff in the details that I've seen that even if it's not everything that, that we could ask for, uh, it's good momentum and, and something that could be built on maybe. But I'm really happy with what I've seen so far. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, because you expressed this when we previously talked, and I've heard others say this, that you're surprised, presently surprised at how well this has worked out. And I'm curious what you think changed. Like, for instance, did the flood of comments that the FCC got affect them? Yeah, I, I think that really was the thing that shifted things decisively in, in favor of these stronger rules. And this is where 
I mean, I, I'm sort of an eternal optimist, and even I had to admit that this was absolutely a long shot to really get this. But I think the the thing that, that this sort of shows is that that kind of holding out hope that this can actually happen and not giving in to the, the kind of the conventional wisdom, uh, the, the dominant discourse in the regulatory sphere all along has been that rules this good and Title II classification and all this is just impossible. And I think what overcame that was the, the massive public participation and putting pressure on uh, Wheeler in particular, uh, but on the process as a whole, that it became a big and important political issue that often doesn't show up around these sort of FCC regulatory proceedings to a point where I, I think they couldn't ignore the public participation like is often done at these sort of things when it was this prominent and this strong. Uh, and that it also turned into a winning political issue, too, that there was this sense that uh, you know this, this could be a, a sort of big public interest victory for the FCC to look uh, to look very good uh, doing this. And, and I think that part of that is certainly pressure not just from people, but uh, President Obama weighing in and basically uh, making his interest in this very clear and what they should do. But that was also a strategic move of uh, a lot of the activists who helped organize a lot of this public response was targeting President Obama, too, and putting pressure on him the same way they did on Chairman Wheeler. And that kind of uh, strategy, I think, was part of it as well. From from what I've seen of this, and this is uh, something I'm definitely looking into more in my research going forward, is is to make sense of how all of this came together. But my sense right now is that it was really good strategic organizing by some really good activist campaigns working kind of outsider strategy to get the public involved in large numbers and also insider strategy of working with companies and policymakers as well. That seems like a really important lesson to take forward, too, because, of course, this only feels like the beginning of, of so much more to come, and especially as what we think of as the Internet is going to spread to our phones, our cars, you know, everything, our thermostats. And so, you know, that seems like a moment to kind of pause and think about how all this happened and take those lessons going forward when we're going to have more fights on economics, on privacy, on, on all this stuff to come. Absolutely. And that's where I, I think taking a moment to sort of stop and celebrate this as like this great victory, I think is is important. But I, I definitely agree that it's not a time to sort of stop and pat ourselves on the back because this is an ongoing fight that even defending the thing that just happened is going to be a part of that fight too. But definitely it's it's going to need to be momentum moving forward into uh, future battles around all of these issues coming up. But I think is is a good lesson in how to, to do that effectively and that lots of people organized well, making their voices heard in these processes can you know, stand up in a fight against big sort of corporate influence that doesn't totally dominate Washington the way that we often assume it does, that we can, you know, we can, we can win these sort of fights too. Okay, good stuff again. Fun. Really appreciate this coverage. Yeah, fun conversation. And our conversation lasted a little bit longer because I also wanted to ask him about the other issue that was talked about during that FCC meeting, which was about uh, municipal broadband and, and lending more competition to the uh, uh, 
broadband providers. And so I asked him that his opinion on that. If you would like to hear that, we have that posted on our website, aca-media.org, as an extra. Yeah, this is a really fascinating issue that you know, all the all the public discussion has been focused on network neutrality, but the municipal issue is really interesting. So we've had a number of states, as I understand it, we've had a number of states that have essentially tried to intervene and pass legislation that bans particular cities from offering municipal services. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And these municipal services have actually been very successful and very promising and fast internet and so forth. But the commercial behemoths don't quite like getting that kind of competition. So this is a very interesting pairing at this FCC meeting of net neutrality and municipal broadband. So that's what Danny tells us about what this uh, new development could mean in, in municipal broadband. So so head to our website to give that a listen. Excellent. Good stuff. In the vein of, an, of another principle that is a kind of bedrock uh, ideal for um, FCC regulation, um, I think we have a... I'm trying to construct a segue here. It's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, no, but here, no, here's the thing. Um, w- another FCC bedrock principle, of course, is localism. And, yes. And... <laughs> each each local area has its own idiosyncratic ways and means. <laughs> Indeed it does. Indeed it does. And um this the the principle of localism suggests that uh coverage of local communities is going to be best if it is responsive to those local communities. Right. Local content is um, is a kind of vital resource that really needs to be preserved. And so we here at Acamedia want to contribute to that act of preservation. And while still serving the wider interests of, for instance, wow, the international is, membership of SCMS. This, this is the biggest, widest, <laughs> loopiest segue Right, but we're there. We got there, and that is because very soon, from March 25th to the 29th, uh, media studies scholars will be descending upon a local area called Montreal, Quebec, Canada, for the 2015 SUMS conference. And we wanted to continue the tradition we launched last year, helping to prepare our listeners for the SUMS experience. Uh, But this time, we outsourced the job to some locals, right? Because local information is best coming from locals. And it's better. It's totally better. Yeah, definitely. So we've got uh, Casey McCormick here, a PhD candidate in Media and Cultural Studies at McGill University in Montreal, and she collected info for us on the best places to go in the area of the conference hotel during SEMS, Um, and she put this together with her partner, Eric Powell, uh, who is a PhD student in communications at Concordia University. He's also a sound artist and composer, so he did the recording and the music here. So they put together this uh, for us. Yeah, so not only did they go out and do the the legwork of putting this story together, they produced it and uh, and mixed it, and so it sounds... Terrific. Yeah, let's give it a listen. Greetings, Acamedia listeners. This is Casey McCormick reporting to you from the beautiful city of Montreal, the site of this year's SCMS conference. I'm also here with my partner in crime, Eric Powell. Hi, Eric. Howdy. Uh, do you want to tell us what we're listening to here? Yeah, we're listening to a recording that I collected from the Bonaventure Metro station. Ah, that's the one that's just below the Fairmont Queen Elizabeth Hotel, yeah? Yeah, and basically the gateway to Montreal's underground city. 
We're going to be offering some advice on how to make your conference experience as convenient, but also as exciting as possible. So we've asked around, we've polled our friends and our professors, and we've got a lot of great info to help you find that truly Montréalais experience. Uh, before you feel the need to grab a pen and paper, don't sweat it. You're going to find links to these and more recommendations in an interactive Google map that Eric and I have been working on. So with that in mind, here we go. We'll be throwing out names of various neighborhoods throughout this segment. In general, these neighborhoods are all quite close to one another, walkable, easily identifiable on a map, and convenient via public transit. However, I do want to point out that as great as our metro system is, it is not very accessible to those in wheelchairs or with other mobility issues. So in our Google map, we're going to try to make notes about the accessibility of individual places, but do keep this unfortunate reality in mind as you plan your time here. Queen Elizabeth is in a bit of what I would call a coffee dead zone. Uh, so you're going to find the big Montreal and Canadian chains very close by, places like Tim Hortons and Second Cup, but coffee snobs won't find these places up to snuff. So for connoisseurs, I recommend Olivier Potier Patissière, uh, which has good coffee and even better pastries. Cafe Humble Lion and Caffeine, that's spelled with a K, that are all within easy walking distance of the conference hotel. So you've now seen a few awesome panels and it's time to break for lunch. There are countless lunch options near the FQE, especially if you walk towards Concordia University, which is to the west of the hotel. Uh, some of my top choices in this area are the Green Panther, which is all vegan, Le Commensal, which is a vegetarian buffet, and uh, Boustin, which is a Lebanese fast food joint with a great falafel sandwich. Uh, for good Japanese food, McGill professor Ned Chance suggests Zenya Sushi, which is downtown and very close to the hotel. Now, if you have a bit more time and want to stroll through the beautiful old port neighborhood, I recommend grabbing a bite at the somewhat upscale Montreal staples of Olive and Gourmando or Le Gros Jambon. Now, all of these places that we've mentioned, they vary in their ability to accommodate a sit-down meeting with a potential publisher or an important colleague. Uh, so for those kinds of lunch and coffee rendezvous, I'd recommend Café Castel at the corner of Peel and Sherbrooke. They've got good coffee, light bites to eat, always a place to sit, and a relatively quiet environment. Now, you've had lunch, and it's a sunny day out, fingers crossed, so you decide to skip a few sessions and explore the city a bit. In terms of art and culture, there are a lot of artist-run centers here in town. Uh, Oboro and Studio XX are both actually located in the same building in the heart of the plateau. They're wonderful places to see what's happening here in the grassroots movement. You can also check out the Belgo building on St. Catharines, which has a wealth of artist studios and small independent galleries. If you're looking to go down into the Old Port, there's the Phi Center, which hosts a wide variety of um, information technology and electronic arts events. Also, a great place to check out is the Canadian Center for Architecture. Uh, this is something we've heard about from all of our respondents who strongly recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a fantastic uh, bookstore with a small reading room, mm -hmm. as well as a wide variety of very interesting exhibitions. And it's free to students, yes? It is free for students. 
Also, I spoke with McGill professor Jonathan Stern, who has a great suggestion for anyone interested in the history of media. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Montreal. Um, if you want to go off the beaten track and you're interested in media archaeological matters, I would call first, but the Musée des Ondes Emile Berliner is in, uh, in a part of Montreal that used to be the high-tech sector in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, it's in the old RCA factory. There's still a studio there. Um, that was originally built in the 1940s and uh, I think they currently have like an exhibit on sound on disc. The place is pretty, like its display areas are pretty rudimentary but the if you can get someone to show you what's in back, like the holdings of old media technologies is quite spectacular um, and they're, they're sort of in the process of becoming um, a more publicly facing museum. Thanks to Jonathan for that recommendation. Uh, a few more cultural stops to mention. Will Straw recommends the Wemetoscope building, uh, which is right at the Baudry Metro station, as well as the Imperial Theater and the Monument National. I should also note that the Queen Elizabeth is located near two of Montreal's more established museums, the Musée d'Art Contemporain, the Contemporary Art Museum, and the Musée des Beaux-Arts, the Fine Art Museum. Uh, for more info, you can check their websites. Now, if you feel the need to skip a few sessions but simply want to chill out, I recommend, if the weather's nice, walking up the mountain. Uh, or if you're in for something a little bit less exertive, I would say go down to the old port and walk along the waterfront. Uh, if it's not nice outside, uh, head to Concordia's library, which has some beautiful reading rooms, some interesting views. It's located at the corner of Maisonneuve and Bishop. Or as Will Straw recommends, you might want to wander through the dystopian parts of the underground city. So, you've now explored the city a bit, or maybe not, maybe you've been inside all day listening to brilliant panels, but regardless, it's time to get your evening underway. Montreal boasts a wide variety of cuisines, and we're gonna try to give you a quick overview here. Now, for the best in contemporary Quebecois cuisine, Au Pied de Cochon is the single stop to make. They have an extensive wine cellar and a very creative menu, mixing traditional ingredients with a contemporary palate. I can speak from personal experience in saying you will never see foie gras in the same way again. Another upscale dining option is Joe Beef in Griffintown, which is a more Anglo neighborhood which isn't too far from the Queen Elizabeth. This neighborhood is also home to some excellent pubs, such as the Burgundy Lion. Another highly recommended spot is Dominion Tavern. And in my opinion, this place has the best cocktails in the city, and it has a really great speakeasy style ambiance. I haven't eaten there, but here the food is amazing. Will Straw also recommends Dominion Tavern, as well as the upscale Portuguese restaurant La Ferreria uh, for what he calls the best meal in town. Now for vegetarians and vegans, Montreal has a variety of options. For a few of the best, let's throw it back to Jonathan Stern for his quick rundown. For uh, vegetarian stuff, I have several uh, sort of reliable haunts and then other places I like to go. So um, if you like the veggie meat thing, Depaneur Le Pickup has an excellent uh, vegetarian pulled, pulled pork. Um, and it's also uh, in a sort of growing, uh, hipster neighborhood that's uh, called Mile X. 
so you can see a slightly different part of town. It's, uh, it's a real sort of Montreal slice of life kind of place. Ovive is like the vegan institution of the city. Um, I love their salads. Uh, their Tempa burger is my favorite veggie burger in town. And um, it's like a nice, pleasant, bright place. Om is a um, Tibetan restaurant on Saint Laurent, which is the main, another interesting part of town. Um, and uh, they have some really good vegetarian options as well, if you like momos, which are Tibetan dumplings. Um, also, I would be remiss if I did not mention the vast um, uh, Punjabi and South Indian offerings and Pakistani offerings in um, Park Extension, which is on Jean Talon West. This is wonderful selection of pretty inexpensive, delicious South Asian restaurants. Um, and I have also had a great vegetarian meal at H4C, which is literally on top of the St. Henri Metro. Now, of course, we would be remiss not to mention poutine, the staple of Montreal cuisine and what Jonathan Stern calls Canadian nachos. Simply put, poutine is fries, gravy, and cheese curds. Now, options on this dish are going to range from fine dining to fast food, but I recommend La Banquise on the Plateau, which has the only confirmed vegetarian poutine option and is open 24 hours, so it's a great spot for late-night gluttony. Speaking of gluttony, let's move on to the most fun part of this segment, Montreal nightlife. For this portion, I want to give a huge thanks to Sunita Nigam. Uh, she's a PhD candidate in cultural studies at McGill, as well as a Quebec native and master of Montreal nightlife. So Sunita starts by recommending that you visit a wine bar, and her top choices are Bouvet chez Simon in the Plateau, uh, Boudavi in the Old Port, and Pullman, which is downtown. Uh, but if wine's not your thing, Eric and I can recommend several Montreal brew pubs. Of course. Uh, my favorite is Benelux, which is uh, right downtown, quite near the conference venue. Uh, moving into the Plateau, you have Reservoir, and on my end, the Montreal staple, Du de Ciel. So once you've gotten your food and drink on, both Sunita and Will Straw recommend Café Cleopatra, which hosts low-budget burlesque and cabaret shows above the strip club that's on the main floor. For the cinephile, check out Eccentris or Cinema du Parc. Both these houses show a variety of new films, classics, and art house. As far as queer hangouts go, Montreal is an extremely queer-friendly city, so folks should feel at home in most bars and clubs. But for a decidedly more queer experience, you definitely don't want to miss Cafe Cleopatra that I've already mentioned, uh, and which makes for a great stop on your way over to the gay village. Other recommendations from McGill PhD candidate Lee Cornfield include Notre Dame des Quilles, which is in Park X, and Le Cajibi, which is in Mile End. McGill PhD student Vicky Simon also recommends Cabaret Playhouse in Mile End. Now, to close us out for this segment, I want to posit two scenarios. So the first one, Eric, you deliver the best conference paper of your life. That scholar who you adore was in the audience, nodding her head the whole time, and you fracking nailed the Q&A. How do you celebrate? Well, Casey, I would celebrate by going up to Opie de Cochon, blowing the bank on a fabulous meal, <laughs> And then I would walk across Duluth all the way up to Reservoir, not that far away, <laughs> explore their beer menu, 
And if I still had time, energy, and money, I would find myself somewhere on Saint Laurent, dancing up a storm until the break of dawn. That sounds lovely. Casey, you have now delivered the worst paper of your entire life. You embarrass yourself in front of everyone. Uh, you may now need to consider a new line of work. How do you forget that this paper ever happened? I think I would start by heading down to Barfly on Saint Laurent, which is this excellent little dive bar. And I drink as many Labatt 50 tall boys as my stomach could handle uh, while shooting some free pool. I then work my way uh, or stumble my way north towards Mile End and eventually find myself eating free snacks and dancing to Johnny Cash at Snack and Blues, which is one of my favorite Mile End institutions run by a bunch of old Quebecers uh, and yeah, boasts the best music, I think, um, Well, in absolutely. Town. You know, their DJ is apparently uh, the Michael of the French version of the Jackson 5. There's a French version of the Jackson 5? So I've heard, and if there is one, this DJ is the Michael Jackson. Excellent. All the more reason to check out Snack and Blues. Well, y'all, I think we are running out of time here. I hope these suggestions have been helpful. Don't forget to check out um, Jonathan Stern's blog at superbalm.net. Don't forget to peruse the information in the conference program, as well as the interactive map that we keep talking about, and my own blog, which is virtualkc.wordpress.com. Uh, thanks, and I'll see you in a few weeks for yeah. SCMS. Have a great conference. Speak easy, speak easy, said Johnny Brown. Why, I'm going to leave this town. Everything is closing down. Speak easy. Speak easy and tell a bunch. Tell them I won't go east and I won't go west, but I've got a different hunch. I'll be leaving in the summer and I won't get back till fall. Goodbye, Broadway. Hello, Montreal. With a stein upon the table, I'll be laughing at you all. <laughs> Goodbye, Broadway. Hello, Montreal. That old tin pail. Okay, so I am so psyched about getting some poutine. That's certainly going to be high on my list. Yeah, well, it's it's on my list. <laughs> so we uh, thank so much Casey McCormick and Eric Powell for putting that together for us. And we definitely welcome content for others. And according to our recent Acamedia survey, um, our listeners are also interested in more of that kind of wide-ranging content. We, uh, we really enjoyed reading your feedback. Yeah, we've got a lot of, of good suggestions, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, so uh, some of the suggestions included looking more into current events, scholarly trends, industry trends. Um, so we'd like to do some of that. Some of the ideas that came up were things like trying to get outside of the relatively narrow confines of what counts as scholarship, doing more of these kinds of um, doing more commentary on public events and um, things like that, which seemed like a really, really good idea. Yeah. And uh, another, there's a great response for Vox Scolari. People like the range of scholars weighing in on a topic. But this means, those of you out there, when we approach you with a microphone at SCMS and say, hey, we're putting together this Vox Scolari, you're not allowed to run away. You are totally not allowed to <laughs> run away because I think we actually now have a mandate to uh, accost people with our microphones. We have a mandate from the people. That's right. And the people will not be denied. No. So we are going, we are just agents of the uh, popular sentiment. So that's right. That's so, right. And, and we also have some, some ex super exciting news here. Todd, can we have a drum roll? 
So as part of this survey, we wanted to offer our listeners a little bit of an incentive to participate. And so we are having a drawing right now, right, right now. Drawing right now. For a brand new car. Brand new car. All right, Michael. Now, does this mean, does this mean there's going to be a road trip to take it to SEMS? Well, I think this might be up to the person who wins it. Yeah. And, and I hate to say that the, uh, well, it, it. It probably is more likely something that will fit in my carry-on rather right. than something that would require driving. Right. Anyway. Okay. Um, Todd, can we have that dr- drum roll again, please? I think our drummer was getting really tired. <laughs> okay. And the winner is... You do the honors. Open it up. All right. Here it comes. The winner is Miranda Banks. Miranda Banks. Miranda Banks. You want a free Huzzah. car from Acamedia. A brand new car. And we will bring that to, presuming she's going to be at SES, I assume so. Uh, we, yeah. will, we will present that to her at SCMS. And maybe we'll record the big moment. That'll be another. Yeah, I think, I think we might have to. Another fun feature for the Maybe we'll episode. have a showcase showdown or something, too. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, maybe then we can give away, you know, the road trip where then she gets to drive in her new car with someone. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a tight fit. Yeah. So we will see you at SCMS. Come find us if we don't find you. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Der Fund at Denison University. And SEMS also provides us a monthly stipend, which we greatly appreciate. Our work would be impossible without the help of our co-producers, Todd Thompson and Bill Kirkpatrick. And thank you for the help on this episode we got from our intern, Jordan Wilson, and then also Matt Paracchio at Denison University. We're also grateful to Casey McCormick and Eric Powell for their Insider's Guide to Montreal, as well as to John Lewis for the terrific interview about his article, and to Joy Futrell for her technical assistance with that interview. And thank you to Danny Kimball as well for his net neutrality insight. Happy travels, happy spring, and we'll talk to you soon. We'll see you in Montreal, hopefully. (laughs) 